One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. everyone thanks for tuning in to the alarmist a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame today we'll be discussing the tuskegee experiment here's what you need to know syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease caused by the bacterium treponema pallidum it first appeared in europe in 1495 and it spread like wildfire It was seen as a mysterious epidemic which struck terror in people by the rapidity of its spread and the helplessness of physicians to cure it. Mercury ointments were the most common treatment for syphilis. But after time, physicians began to realize that its potential side effects, including neuropathies, kidney failure, severe mouth ulcers, loss of teeth, and even death from mercury poisoning, outweighed its benefits and the treatment was considered ineffective. In the 1920s, over 400 years later, syphilis was still around, and in the United States, it was a major public health crisis. One in every 10 Americans had syphilis. 
The only significant advancement in treatment for the disease had happened back in 1909 when a German bacteriologist found success with a drug called Compound 606. Its only drawback? It was an arsenic compound. In order for it to be effective and not kill the patient, it had to be administered via multiple injections over a long period of time, which could still cause toxic side effects. As if the risks weren't enough, it was also costly, with a course of treatment from a private physician setting back patients anywhere from $300 to $1,000. Toward the end of the 1920s, infection rates were rising. A 1929 study found the community in Macon County, Alabama, had one of the highest, with over 35% of its population having contracted syphilis. The residents of Macon County were mainly black, low-income sharecroppers who could not afford medical attention. Most people went to the doctor if they thought they were going to die. Otherwise, they'd try to take care of it themselves. Macon County was also home to the Tuskegee Institute. The Institute, later known as Tuskegee University, was founded in 1881 by Booker T. Washington as a teacher's college. It was the first higher education school for African Americans in Alabama. In 1923, it had opened the Tuskegee VA Hospital to provide long-term care for black veterans. It was here that in 1932, the United States Public Health Service, USPHS, decided to conduct its Tuskegee study. Spearheaded by Dr. Talia Farrow-Clark and Dr. Raymond H. Vonderleer, along with doctors from the Tuskegee Institute, the USPHS began to recruit African-American men from the area to partake in a scientific experiment on syphilis. The Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, as it was referred to by researchers, set out to, quote, observe the natural history of untreated syphilis in black populations. At first, researchers faced little participation as the men in the area believed they were giving free physicals in order to later be recruited to the military. As a result, they began examining women and children too in order to quell the public's fears. It worked. Black men between the ages of 25 and 60 were given blood tests to determine if they had syphilis. Those who qualified were then asked to become part of the study. They were told they'd been selected to receive free medical care for their, quote, bad blood. Bad blood was a term used locally to describe a number of ailments, including anemia, fatigue, and syphilis. As an incentive, these men were offered medical exams, rides to and from the clinic, meals on examination days, and free treatments for minor ailments. In the case they died, they were told their survivors would receive a burial stipend to cover costs after death. For the people of this community, what they were being offered in terms of medical care and survivor's insurance was a big draw. A total of 600 men were enrolled in the study. Of this group, 399 who had syphilis were a part of the experimental group, and 201 were controlled subjects. The participants were told that the treatment would last only six months. They received physical examinations, x-rays, spinal taps, and if they died, autopsies. But the truth behind this study was incredibly deceptive. Doctors and researchers never intended to actually treat the men for syphilis. 
1933, the USPHS had decided to continue the study long-term. The doctors running the experiment had hired Eunice Rivers, a black nurse known in the local community to act as a liaison between the men and the doctors. She was vital in encouraging the participants to continue keeping their appointments and for those who passed away, convincing their families to consent to their autopsies. In order to make sure that the men didn't receive treatment for syphilis outside of the study, in 1934, they provided doctors in Macon County with lists of their subjects and requested that they did not treat them. In 1940, this list was extended to the Alabama Health Department, and in 1941, when many of the men were drafted and subsequently had their syphilis uncovered by the entry exam, researchers had them removed from the Army so that they wouldn't be treated by Army doctors. After penicillin became the standard treatment for the disease in 1947, the USPHS opened several rapid treatment centers to treat syphilis patients with the drug. But the medicine was withheld as part of the treatment for the 399 men in their Tuskegee study. Even when penicillin became widely available and was curing late syphilis in 1953, the study kept going and the men kept dying. By then, about 30% of the participants had received penicillin as treatment for other ailments by other doctors. They were the lucky ones. In its defense for the continuation of their study, the USPHS claimed that the participants wouldn't seek treatment for penicillin anyway, or stick to the prescribed treatments because they were, quote, too stoic to visit a doctor. This, of course, was not true, as the men had been lied to and told that they were in fact receiving treatment. By 1956, the study was still going on, and researchers argued that at that point it was too late to give up on their subjects. Their syphilis had progressed far too long without treatment for the drug to now help. This was also not true, as the drug was recommended during all stages of the infection and could have potentially saved their life. It wasn't until 1972 when whistleblower Peter Buxton, who discovered the study and attempted to stop it within the USPHS for seven years, went ahead and leaked the information to the New York Times. The paper printed the story as front-page news on November 17th, and there was a massive outcry. Not until then did the study finally end. By that time, only 74 of the men were still alive. 128 patients had already died of syphilis or its complications. 40 of their wives had been infected, and 19 of their children had acquired congenital syphilis. The Tuskegee study ranks as one of the most unethical medical experiments in United States history. Fun facts, aka death stats. The study initially involved 600 black men 399 with syphilis, 201 who did not have the disease. Although originally projected to last six months, the study actually went on for 40 years. After it was disclosed, there was mass public outrage, and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People launched a class action suit against the USPHS. It settled the suit two years later for $10 million and agreed to pay the medical treatments of all surviving participants and infected family members, 
the last of whom died in 2009. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hello, hello. And our very special guest today is actor, writer, filmmaker, friend, incredible hair person, Marina Mitchelson. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for liking my hair, I guess. (laughs) Marina, we like to start off the show by just kind of asking our guests, what is something that gives you a lot of anxiety or is keeping you up at night? What gives you alarm? Uh... Doing this podcast has been giving me anxiety for the last few days. I mean, I have to give it to you. You have nerves of steel for covering these subjects every week. When you told me Tuskegee study, I was like, are you, you're joking, right? Because I'm pretty sure you covered the Spice Girls breakup like two weeks ago. (laughs) Yes. And then I started doing the reading and I was sick to my stomach. I I do apologize for uh, giving you one of the worst ones ever. So my apologies. Um, But we have to do them all. And it's, I think it's important that we cover even the worst of these tragedies um, because I, for one, had not, did not know much about the Tuskegee study I, uh, or experiment, as we, we should really be calling it. I don't know about you three. I didn't know as much detail as I know now. I mean, I do know that it was like a stain on our nation's history, but also one of those stories we have about American racism that is just kind of swept under the rug so we don't, so so that we're not really afraid. But when, especially in this year, like given, given that this is about an epidemic, the syphilis epidemic, living in a pandemic, it's particularly frightening to think that those that are in charge of protecting our health are actually doing the opposite. That's right. So don't sleep ever. I just want to start off by saying that, of course, this whole week, I've been very angry. Um, It's just a very disgusting thing to learn. Um, And yet I'm not surprised you know, we spend so much in time, so much time in our school, like learning about the atrocities committed by the Nazis, and rightfully so. But very little time is spent on the Nazi-like experimentation that was actually happening this whole time in this country, which was, I mean, so incredibly upsetting because we're being lied to. We're, we're supposed to. You're, they're telling us we we're the good guys, and I'm not saying we're not good guys, but there's there's darkness here, and we got to be aware of it. Um, anyway, I I I, I today I, I'm I'm actually sad because I, I maybe I'm going through all the emotions, but I just felt so sad for the men and their families and the communities who got taken advantage of. And not only did they take advantage of of the poor, but they took advantage of the sick which is a particularly, I keep saying the word disgusting, but uh, that's, all, that's the only one I can find for this. So let's get started by talking about syphilis. So there's two theories of how it spread in Europe. The first theory is that it was presented, it was present in the Americas when Columbus arrived and that he brought it back with him in, 19, in 1493. Because, and because the Europeans didn't have immunity to the disease, it spread very, it, it spread easily. 
of course, there's a new, there's a, another hypothesis that came out in, in 1934 that said that syphilis had always been in in Europe, um, but that's been kind of debunked, I think, at this point. So, syphilis had a variety of names. Usually, people naming it after an enemy or a country that they thought responsible for it. So, the French called it the Neapolitan disease or the Spanish disease. The English and Italians called it the French disease. The Germans called it the French evil. The Russians called it the Polish disease. (laughs) The Polish and the Persians called it the Turkish disease. The Turkish called it the Christian disease. The Tahitians called it the British disease. (laughs) I mean, the list goes on. In India, it was called the Portuguese disease. In Japan... It kind of sounds like how one asshole keeps calling it the China virus. Right. Wow, you're very smart, Marina. <laughs> the, I mean, people are still using these political tactics with language. So how, how does the virus work? This is according to G- jmvh.org. 50 to 100 years after its appearance in Naples, the disease became less virulent and less lethal. The disease had several distinct phases. The first began with genital sores or pox. After these had healed uh, and several weeks following, there appeared to be a generalized rash, often accompanied by fevers, aches, and the night bone pains. That sounds terrible, night bone pains. Um, As well as... uh, a rash of ver- verrocus papules. <laughs> I'm saying that wrong. Uh, often broke out in the yeah, it's it broke out bad. in the general area. No one wants verrocus papules in the general area. Genital area. Okay. When these healed, a long latent period occurred, lasting months initially, and as history passed, several years in which there were few symptoms. So it goes dormant, and then the last phase consisted of the appearance of abscesses and ulcers, often ending with severe debility, madness, or death. It was this phase of the disease which syphilis was greatly feared because of the disfigurement it caused and the social ostracism that ensued. It was viewed by ordinary people as a sign of sin for which they were shunned and punished. Um, So a lot to unpack there. And I should add that not everyone got that last phase of the disease apparently sometimes it just went away other times it it they people still had could uh, test positive for syphilis but not have it get bad and then there were i i think it, i believe it's 30 percent of of people who have syphilis who if it's untreated go into this last phase and it sounds like there's like just lifelong awful side effects, right? Which is like what some of the point of this study was, is that beyond these awful initial onsets, you're going to be living with it for the rest of your right. life. There's also blindness. Treated. That was another uh, one of the uh, effects of the disease. Um, there were actually a lot of historical figures that are suspected to have had syphilis because let's like remind ourselves this is 500 years it's been around and no one has been able to figure out a cure or how to stop it uh and some of these historical figures are tolstoy nietzsche nietzsche is that nietzsche (laughs) nietzsche uh vladimir lenin adolf hitler 
Oscar Wilde, Al Capone, and Henry VIII. That's it. With the exception of Oscar Wilde, there's a lot of guys with bad attitudes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Which kind of makes sense. It's like oddly a cause to celebrate. (laughs) Well, we shouldn't say it's karma because a lot of good people had it. But these are the, the, the worst ones. Sounds like some of the worst ones. Well, it did cause... Uh, like a, a madness. So, according to History.com, experts have attributed Henry VIII's apparent mental instability to syphilis and theorized that osteomyelitis, a chronic bone infection, caused his mobility problems. The syndrome could explain many of the symptoms the king experienced later in life. I don't know about you guys, but when I think about varicose, varicose populuses on the genitals, I'm kind of glad we're doing a podcast and not like an IMAX movie, you know what I mean? Don't worry, I'm going to get it in the sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bring that to life very vividly. Oh no! No, I would not. <laughs> I don't even know what that would sound like and I don't want to know. Um, but Rebecca, so should we just, I know we're going to get into the nitty gritty, gritty, but should we put just syphilis in general and, and also maybe Christopher Columbus up on the board? Just to I get think so, started? actually. I think we should put Columbus and his 44 men crew up on the board. Now, let's start getting angry um, <laughs> <laughs> by <laughs> putting up. Scientific racism up on the board. That's my big one. Yeah. So according to McGill's Office for Science and Society, in 1865, the ratification of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution formally ended enslavement of black Americans. But by the early 20th century, the cultural and medical landscape of the U.S. was still built upon the inundated, uh, inundated racist concepts. Social Darwinism was rising, predicated on the survival of the fittest, and scientific racism, a pseudoscientific practice of using science to reinforce racial biases, was common. Many white people already thought themselves superior to blacks, and science and medicine was all too happy to reinforce this hierarchy. Before the ending of slavery, scientific racism was used to justify the African slave trade. Scientists argued that African men were uniquely fit for enslavement due to their physical strength and simple minds. This is tough to read. Um, They argued that slaves possessed primitive nervous systems, so did not experience pain as white people did. Enslaved African-Americans in the South were claimed to suffer from mental illness at rates lower than the free northern counterparts, thereby proving, from their perspective, thereby proving that enslavement was good for them. Doctors of the time testified that the emancipation of slaves had caused the, quote, mental, moral, and physical deterioration of the black population, observing that, quote, Virtually free of disease as slaves, they were now overwhelmed by it. Scientific and medical authorities of the, of the late 19th and early 20th centuries held extremely harmful pseudoscientific ideas, specifically about the sex drives and genitals of African Americans. It was widely believed that while the brains of African Americans were under-evolved, their genitals were overdeveloped. Black men were seen to have an intrinsic perversion for white women and all African-Americans were seen as inherently immoral and unsatiably sec- uh, with unsatiable sexual appetites. 
This all matters because it was with these understandings of race, sexuality, and health that researchers undertook the Tuskegee study. They believed, largely due to their fundamentally flawed scientific understanding of race, that black people were extremely prone to sexually transmitted infections like syphilis. Low birth rates and high miscarriage rates were universally blamed on STIs. They also believed that all black people, regardless of their education, background, economic, or personal situation, could not be convinced to get treatment for syphilis. Thus, the USPHS could justify that the Tuskegee study, calling it a study in nature rather than an experiment meant to simply observe the natural progression of syphilis within a community that wouldn't seek treatment. Hmm. 19 fucking 32. Yeah. Not. Oh, that is so crazy. It was before the Nazi experiments. Like we talk, like the first thing I thought about reading this was Mengele. And you think about all of the awful experiments the Nazis performed on people. And this was before that. It was our idea. He was copying us. My, I want to put up the United States Public Health Service. Oh, Mm, one hundo. I mean, (laughs) one hundo. I'll tell you that my favorite thing about the show, I think what you do very well is that you really stick it to the man and, you know, do me the honor of putting the holy trifecta of white supremacy, capitalism and the patriarchy up on the board because (laughs) you want to put the patriarchy. We don't even have to discuss it. Well, yeah, we don't have to discuss it. I mean, let's think about who the Nazis think about Mengele and all of those people. They were it was all led by men. At the end of the day, I don't think it's as much a cause of patriarchy as it definitely is a cause of white supremacy and um, capitalism. But they're they're like all intertwined. Right, right. Mm. So let's put them up. And let's talk about this USPHS. So uh, they're obviously the ones who carried out the study. They have now been folded into the CDC. So according to McGill's Office for Science and Society, in 1947, the Nuremberg Code was written. And for reference, the Nuremberg Code aimed to protect human subjects from enduring the kind of cruelty and exploitation of prisoners Uh, endured at concentration camps. Ten elements of the code are voluntary consent is essential. The results of any experiment must be for the greater good of society. Human experiments should be based on previous animal should should be based on previous animal experimentation. Experiments should be conducted by avoiding physical, mental suffering and injury. No experiments should be conducted if it's believed that they will cause death or disability. The risks should never exceed the benefits. Adequate facilities should be used to protect subjects. Experiments should be conducted only by qualified scientists, and subjects should be able to end their participation at any time. And the scientists in charge must be prepared to terminate the experiment when injury, disability, or death is likely to occur. Okay, that happens in 47. Then, In 1964, the uh, World Health Organization publishes the Declaration of Helsinki. So they're both aimed to protect humans from experimentation. But despite this, the CDC, which had taken over the USPHS and controlling the study at this point, actively decided to continue the study as late as 1969. The fact that they continued to do this 
speaks to me the most about what they thought of these people or how little they cared for them. And let's talk about who some of these people were who, you know, let's put some names up because... There's a lot of them. And, you know, I, I kind of cherry picked the worst of the worst. <laughs> uh, but before I forget, I do want to put the CDC as well up on the board because they had a chance to stop it and they didn't. That was. Oh, they're up there. Oh, they're up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, well, before we talk about these people, actually, let's talk about this thing called agentic state. So the agentic state is a state of mind in which a person will allow other people to direct their behaviors and pass responsibility for the consequences of the behaviors to the person telling them what to do. Oh, it's like the like Stanford prison experiment and all that yes. stuff. Oh, I think okay. it's going to be like, I think, listen, that's going to be the, uh, the lawyer's argument for a few of the people that we're going to put on the board. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like somebody does have to bear responsibility, specifically agencies that taxpayers entrust with, you know, the CDC is definitely to, to blame. Oh, <laughs> don't get me started. Some, no, <laughs> these, no one is getting away. Scott, Scott free, Scott free. I forgot what show I was on. What? I forgot that we're going to blame them all, point all the fingers. Oh, oh, are you kidding me? But I think this is really interesting in, uh, for our alarmy, you know, as member, uh, members of an alarmist community. So in most social situations, we expect that someone will be in charge, a host at dinner, a, at a dinner party, a flight attendant on a plane, an usher at a theater. In such situations, we naturally do as the authority tells us. The problem, of course, comes when legitimate authority figure asks us to do something cruel or dishonest. According to Milgram, we often try and weasel our way out of such conflicts by imagining ourselves as mere instruments for the wishes of the authority. I, I, I found that fascinating. And, and t- let's talk about this whistleblower before we talk about the other guys, because I feel like he does deserve the big clap. Mm. Um, which I do. I, I know that we're talking about syphilis, which is a, 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 a an STD, and I've been told that the big clap sounds like an STD. So I, I see the connection. I see the irony when you hear it during this episode. I'm with you. I'm laughing. Ha ha ha. <laughs> but Peter Buxton. Should we for this episode call it the big applause so we don't have any confusion? <laughs> So this is the guy who he actually his family fled from uh, Nazi occupation in Czechoslovakia in 1939. So in 66, he's 27 years old. He's a young guy. Uh, He's a venereal disease investigator for the U.S. Public Health Service. And he's in San Francisco. And that's when he learns about this 1932 study. He's shocked to hear about this. And so he starts going to, uh, he, he tells his higher ups. He, um, he, he gets called to Atlanta to talk to the directors. And they just like keep putting him down, putting him down. He continues. He, he goes to law school and he leaves the, the, uh, the public uh, health service. And then he just can't quit it he he he's he's still trying to get this stopped and they won't do anything about it so he leaks the information to the washington star and it eventually gets the attention of new york times 
uh, reporters. And that's how we find out about it 40 years later. And he was trying for like seven years. Blows my mind. One guy. But it also gives us hope. Okay. But enough claps. Let's (laughs) let's talk about bad, bad boys. Bad, bad boys. Dr. Talia Farrow Clark. He is associated with the start of the experiment. He was a public health service officer who guaranteed that the government was giving their full support of this study. And uh, he finished the Rosenwald project and noticed that the rate of syphilis was rising. So along with Dr. Vonderleer, he began this study. Clark expressed no ethical qualms as he prepared for what he said was, quote, an unparalleled opportunity. Let's also put Dr. Raymond Vonderleer. He is the on-site director of the study, and he assisted Dr. Clark in conducting the research. He also helped conduct physical exams, so he's the guy on the ground. Vonderleer came up with policies which gained, quote, consent of the African men for their spinal taps. What they did in order to get these men to agree to these spinal taps was that they told them that they were getting a very special shot. And we also have to talk about Dr. Thomas Perrin Jr. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, most historians and medical scholarship scholars pin the study um, on Talia Farrell Clark. But Alan Hornblum, a Philadelphia author who has written about the human experiments at Holmes Berg Prison, says archived rec- records indicate that a much more prominent figure in American medical history, a World War II era surge- Surgeon General, was the study's driving force. In a new essay, he argues that Clark stole the idea of the Tuskegee non-treatment study from Dr. Thomas Perrin Jr., who was a medical pioneer and who graced the cover of Time magazine in 1936. He is the intellectual godfather, the architect of the study, and Perrin was anything but obscure. He helped draft the Social Security Act for President uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and became the nation's sixth Surgeon General. So there was this Oslo experiment. Have you guys heard about the, that happened like a few years before the Tuskegee one? And it was a Norwegian study um, that Perrin found especially intriguing. Uh, and it was a rep- ret- retrospective investigation of an earlier non-treatment experiment performed on 2,000 patients at an Oslo hospital between 1891 and 1910. Uh, Captivated by the idea of withholding treatment, Perrin applauded the Oslo experiment as an example of masterful inaction, reflecting dominant uh, thought at the time in medicine that human experimentation was often defensible. Now, consistent with a research uh, mean that can best be described as unrestrained was Perrin's oversight of an equally, if not more ethically troubling series of venereal disease experiments in Guatemala between 1946 and 1948. Once again, designed to advance scientific knowledge, public health physicians orchestrated a program that purposefully infected with syphilis, gonorrhea, and chancroid? Is that how you say it? Chancroid. 
uh, through inoculation and the use of prostitutes over uh, 1,300 prisoners, soldiers, and mental patients. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah, this is the guy who had the idea. Uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, he basically copied the Norwegian experiment, but did it on African Americans, right? That, that, that was the whole idea. Yeah. And he was like, because was the study will be perfect that. because we've got their study and we're going to replicate it on this group. Yeah, I mean, he sounds very much to blame. Gonna point a big ass finger at him. <laughs> yeah, he's not look. It's not looking good for him. That's for sure. No. no. So uh, another guy we got to put up there is uh, John Cutler. Cutler is an assistant surgeon general and venereal disease specialist who was deeply involved in the Tuskegee study, and he is later furious at Buxton for asking about this. He's just he's mad that he even brought it up. This is the whistleblower. Buxton is the whistleblower. So he was also involved in the experiment in, in Guatemala in the 1940s. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was known to be a bad guy. Bad uh, just guy. a little side note here is uh, a little while ago when I said patriarchy goes on the board, we were like, hmm, really? But we've only been putting men up on the board. It's very interesting you say that because the next person I'm going to put up I know. is a woman. I know who she is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um, uh, uh, marina has her hand on her hip and she's like i know who she <laughs> I is i mean this woman is a turncoat i've been thinking a lot about this woman it's it's a complicated situation um her name is nurse rivers also known as eunice rivers Laurie. And according to Project Muse, she worked in the public health field from 1923 until well after her retirement in 1965. She began her career with the Tuskegee Institute Movable School during the 1920s in rural Alabama. This traveling school for African Americans provided adult education programs in agriculture, home economics, and health. And after a decade of service with the school, Rivers became involved in the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study. In 1932. Now, how could a nurse dedicated to preserving life participate in such a project? Although historians have noted that the key role that Rivers played in the experiment, they have presented her as a victim by virtue of her st status as a woman, an African-American and a nurse, groundbreaking work by James Jones, for example, interpreted much of Rivers' participation as driven by obedience to a higher authority. So that was going to be my point earlier when you were, like, explaining mm -hmm. that theory. To me, this is exactly where that defense applies. Yeah. And now let's take a quick break to speak with guest expert Professor Susan Reverby on the matter. She is a historian of American healthcare, women, race, and public health, as well as the author of Examining Tuskegee, the Infamous Syphilis Study and Its Legacy. Eunice Rivers Laurie, the uh, black woman who was the nurse, um, you know, was a respected figure in the community. She had gone, she's from Georgia, but she had gone to school in Tuskegee. She was the school nurse for lots of people as well. This was a, she worked on the study, but it was pretty part-time. She also was a public health nurse. She'd help. Um, do some of the earliest research on um, vital statistics in the in the state when, when we weren't even counting black deaths and births in the 20s. So she did a lot of that work. She was a very good public health nurse. And so people trusted her. I remember one of the men in the study who was still alive when I was doing my research said to me, you know, we always loved her. So there just was this deep relationship to her. 
I'm just curious, like, why did she do it? And how, how vital was she in the continuation of the study? Um, I mean, part of the reason we're so focused on her, I think there are a couple of explanations for it. First of all, there are, I mean, the, the study goes on for 40 years, right, from 1932 to 1972. So it's the longest running non-therapeutic research study that we know of in American history. And so you can imagine hundreds of doctors come and go from the public health service. So she becomes sort of the only sort of figure that stands out when we tell the story in lots of ways. And also she's the nurse, right? So we kind of expect the doctors to behave badly on some level, but the nurse is supposed to be the caregiving (laughs) figure. So I think it's an artifact of in part sort of the sexism of expectation for her. Listen to our full interview on Thursday's Aftermath episode. Now back to our conversation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy... Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. She lied to them straight to their face and she lied to their families after they died. I mean, we can't deny that she was a useful and important element of this um, experiment. And whether or not 
whether or not she's to blame at the end of the day. Right. She definitely goes on the board. I mean, she is part of this massive conspiracy that without her, she was clearly a key element. But whether it would have all, you know, whether it all falls on her shoulders. I also want to put up the Great Depression. So infection rates of 20% among Southern blacks had prompted the USPHS to launch a treatment program in 1929. Treatment a year uh, of a year of arsenic and mercury injection injections was costly, arduous and toxic, but it did control the disease. Now, because the state funding was inadequate, the USPHS obtained grants to cover treatment costs. So they started doing these treatments, but the depression comes along, wipes out the foundation support and wrecked the USPHS budget. Deciding to savage the data, the USPHS chose the 400 syphilitic subjects for annual exams and blood tests without the expense of therapy. For comparison, another 200 men were also chosen to be monitored. So essentially, this was their backup, their cheap backup plan. I mean, yeah. Put it Wall up. Street? You want to blame yeah. Wall Street? I mean, I'm just going to throw it back to capitalism. So if we'll just Ooh. tie that back in. Yeah, that's fair. I, yeah. I mean, my ride or die issue, like if I were a single issue voter, it would be a Medicare for all. Like I, mm. I just think that it's, it is not a privilege. It is a right that we all have access to healthcare. All humans, especially when we've got the technology and the advancements to um, be able to actually help people. So so to me, but, but but Marina, Marina, let me ask you a question. Honestly, have oh, you ever spent forty five minutes talking to your insurer? Oh, it is fantastic. I, you should look at These my to do list the- every day. It's on there because I just so avoid it. Well, let's send someone to jail. So, Chris, do you want to run us through this list? Um, okay, who's to blame for the Tuskegee study? Is it syphilis, the disease? Columbus and his forty four man crew. <laughs> Systemic racism. Oh, sorry. Scientific racism. Yes. United States public health health system, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, the three, three of our favorites, <laughs> the CDC, the identic state, Dr. Taliaferro Clark, Dr. Raymond H. Vondelaire, Dr. Thomas Perrin Jr., John Cutler, Nurse Eunice Rivers Laurie, or the Great Depression. I just got to say, Columbus is a lucky bastard. Oh, you're right. <laughs> okay, so Columbus gets gets out, and, and, and syphilis, I think, as a disease, should get away with it, too. I mean... I'm going to... Wait, I want to put something else on the board. I just... Something popped oh, into my Amanda's mind. Oh, Amanda's going to be mad. Last second. Sorry, Amanda. You're, it's going against protocol. Well, no, just like ahead. while we're we'll in this what? section, I would think we should bring back, we had, what was it called? Like American prudism? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here's my pitch. The part of this study was like, oh, their whole like misguided um, sort of presumption that black people, African-American people had some sort of sex uh, craze, uh-huh, like yeah. sex obsession. And this popped up too with um, the Spanish when they invaded um, the Native Americans. They were like, or when they were trying to enculturate them, they were like, oh my God, these people, they just like have sex with each other all the time. So it's like this, like well, the, the American the, prudeness or the sort of 
white European prudeness is the like, wh- why is this more having lots of sex? The problem guys here. Totally. I think that's a good point. Okay. I mean, let's take the great depression off a gen- agentic state. I, I, I guess that's more of the cause for why no one like stood up. Right, it's a bystander effect, but it is not. Yeah. It is not our cause. I will also yes. say that like I'm just gonna give it to Nurse Eunice. I feel, I think that she's to blame, but I don't think she is ultimately to blame. Yeah, she had. Uh, a, she's she could be folded into the agentic state. I hope we're saying that right because it keeps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm gonna get some emails. <laughs> so, are the CDC and the USPHS different or the same? Because we've got them as two separate people to blame here. They at the time the CDC. I don't know if the CDC was around, but I know that USPHS got folded into the CDC, so they're no longer around. But the USPHS started the study, so maybe we should keep them and take off the CDC. Yeah, Yeah, but shame on them for not stopping it. They could have, they really could have stopped it. But shame on them. But you're right. What's capitalism's role? I think we can cut that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were asking. What's <laughs> capitalism? <laughs> After all this time, Chris. Well, you know how you go to a store, Chris, and you're thirsty, and you can't just take the the Gatorade out of the refrigerator, right? <laughs> all um, this time, every time we talk about capitalism, Chris just nods his yeah, head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, capitalism. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. Is that a he Washington? doesn't have a computer that, a ho- that he could search. Is that the hockey team from Washington, <laughs> D.C.? That's yeah, the Capitals. I, I, that's I think that's good to to take off. And I, I don't know. To me, also, it's like the patriarchy and white supremacy. I almost feel like can get rolled into scientific racism because that's yeah. a little nicer for this. Yeah, one. I think white. I think nicer. yeah, the way that we're looking at white supremacy is through the lens of scientific racism here. Yes. Okay. So up on the board still are scientific racism. United States public health system, Dr. Clark, who started the experiment, Dr. Vonderleer, who was on the ground, Dr. Thomas Parn Jr., the Surgeon General, intellectual godfather, and American prudism. You want to? You, did you cut Cutler? He got. I yeah. think we could cut Cutler here. I'll cut, take him off. Cutler got the boot. Yeah. But that guy is a real dirtbag yeah. because he then went to South America and injected people with syphilis. So yeah. that, that guy is for another day. Like we got to get. He, you got a target on your back, Cutler. I'm coming after you. But now we have the doctors, the boys, the the entire system, and scientific racism. It's it's hard because it's like, I, the system allowed it to run. That's the hard part for me between picking a person or the system. I'm not sure what's going to feel better um, because looking at these three names of these three guys, the idea that any of them gets off scotch-free is not fair, Um, but it is the entire system that enabled it for 40 years. Uh, And you just hearing you say that, it's like these three guys we're just guys like the whole system like you said allowed it to happen maybe we could wrap um united states public health system up in scientific racism Mm. or not quite so fast i don't think so i think if anything we could wrap the guys up into 
the USPHS, you know, have them all be part of the system and then have to choose between scientific racism and the public health system. Yeah, but Amanda makes a good point. Like the, the roots, like scientific, if, if, US, mm. if the US PHS is a tree, the roots of the tree are scientific racism or something. I agree. I, mean, I think we're looking at people, we're looking at people versus systems. And the, those systems, again, like that's the weird thing is, you know, all of these systems are so one up a part of one another. They don't exist outside of one another. So I think that those two against these three men is that's how I'm seeing it. But what would you call it? Would it be would it be more the public health system or would it be scientific racism? The racist public health system. <laughs> <laughs> tricky tricky. Uh, how about how about in, it, we call it the R U S Marina, we brought you H S. Marina, we we brought you on here to make these tough decisions, okay? You can't try and weasel your way out of it. Scientific racism gets out, gets off. This is incredible. Wow, they must have a great lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now we got the three guys. The uh, the Surgeon General, the intellectual godfather, the guy on the ground, and the guy who started the experiment, Dr. Clark. Quick question. The, all yes. those men were working for the USPHS. Yes. I like where we're going. I'm just uh-huh. saying, if you're putting the USPHS in jail, it will sweep up the men with it. It will. And then one, we can then give one of them an extra slap. Ooh. I didn't know we could do that. I think, I think we do put the racist United, United States public health system in jail. Okay. So hear me out here. I think... Dr. Von Der Leer gets the big slap. Wow, that was not what I was expecting. And I'll tell you why. I think it's, it's terrible what, what these other men did, but to look someone in the eye and actually be on the ground and lie to them to their face and do it day in and day out and see them for years, it takes a particularly, like, unempathetic bad person to do that. Uh, I will say that th- that implicates Nurse Rivers as well. I mean, oh, Nurse Rivers did boy. the same exact thing. Oh, but boy. she's got that defense. She's got the, you know, agentic state defense, which is she is lower on the rung than this doctor. Right. Yes. But that's, that's what, a good point. That's, that's, that's a good point. But that's, that's a good what point. you guys, are, that was the exact point you guys were making for Vondelaire is that he was going, I mean, he's, he's carrying no. out the objectives of these other guys uh, yeah but still he, a doctor he's a head he honcho the, here he was the leader of that he was he was the leader of that he wasn't i mean he was i would say i would put him as an enthusiastic accomplice right versus these other people so he had both but because so because he was both the he was both part sort of strategy guy uh-huh. and also the guy who carried out the plan he was a planner. He was a writer actor, I guess, in our part. <laughs> they like, were a team, like, right? But Clark, like Marina. these two guys were a team. Yeah. Right. They were a team. Yeah. It was multi So maybe we put them, we, we both give both of them since they were a, a team. A double big slap. A double big slap. And I can't believe, well, Parin, Dr. Thomas Parin, he's not getting away with it. He's going to jail. Right. Well, he's so, part of the racist public. He's part of the system. group. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to call it. Should we start with our big clap? Yes. For the whistleblower. 
Peter Buxton, you're getting the big clap. And that's an applause. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Clark and Dr. Vonderleer, you're getting the big slap. Along with that slap, boys, the racist United States public health system, you're going to the alarmist jail. Well, Marina, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us get to the bottom of who's to blame. Yeah, I don't feel as sad anymore. Now that we've put the public health system in jail, I kind of feel relieved. You see how that works? (laughs) (laughs) Now we can rebuild the system and it will have Medicare for all. Now the important work begins. Now the important work begins. Now the work begins. After the Tuskegee experiment... According to McGill's Office of Science and Society, largely in response to the Tuskegee study, Congress passed the National Research Act in 1974, and the Office for Human Research Protections was established within the USPHS. Obtaining informed consent from all study participants became required for all research on humans. With this process overseen by institutional review boards within academia and hospitals, the Tuskegee study has had lasting effects on America. It's estimated that the life expectancy of black men fell by up to 1.4 years when the study's details came to light. Many also blame the study for impacting the willingness of black individuals to willingly participate in medical research today. On May 16, 1996, President Bill Clinton apologized at a White House ceremony attended by the men, members of the Legacy Committee, and others representing the medical and research communities to the surviving participants of the study and families of the deceased. No one has ever been prosecuted for their role in the study. What was done cannot be undone. But we can end the silence. We can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye and finally say, on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful. And I am sorry. you think is to blame by going to the alarmistpodcast.com follow us at the alarmist the on twitter at the alarmist podcast on instagram or email us at the alarmist podcast at gmail.com tune in next week we'll be discussing the extinction of the dodo bird Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.